morning. I am Pastor Mike, and today we are kicking off Why, our series where we are tackling your questions. Now, before we get to it, two major opening disclaimers. One, we obviously do not have enough time or enough weeks to cover every single submitted question, so we are going to be saving some for a future edition of this sermon series. And two, understand that we're going to be engaging each of these questions with humility. At times, even offering seemingly contradictory and multiple answers to some of these questions. And that's because y'all did your job. The questions y'all submitted were challenging, complex, thought-provoking, and we're going to try to engage them in as humble a way as possible. Amen? Amen. Amen. And to kick things off, we're starting with a question that just tickled me. That is, why can't I drink alcohol before noon on Sunday? (laughs) More broadly, for today, we're also going to be exploring, are Christians allowed to drink? <laughs> and I, I love this question. Primarily, I chose it for two main reasons. First, because it recalled my childhood in the church, which was full of, let's just say, confusing messaging around whether Christians were allowed to consume alcohol or not. The Southern Baptists said that drinking was outright sinful and that God would, like, kill me, like, zap, if I had a sip of liquor. While the charismatic church I went to later told me all sorts of things, mostly along the lines of Christians could drink, but only after following one million different rules, right? Beer and wine were fine, but not liquor. Two drinks was okay, but three was wicked, and obviously never before five or on Sunday, because that's the Lord's day, and he hates such behavior. All rules, they claimed, came from Scripture, which in seminary I learned was categorically false. (laughs) This question just brought back lovely memories of my childhood. But more importantly, I think I chose this question because of how it seemingly has a pretty simple answer, yet, uniquely, when we answer it, we're immediately confronted with some really complicated, deep ideas about the fundamental nature of Christian ethics. What do I mean by that? Well, let's knock out the simple part first, shall we? Question. Why can't I drink before noon on Sunday? Answer, you can. (laughs) You see, historically, Christians have primarily sought to deal with alcohol's complicated impact on human beings by creating these various doctrinal statements and then rules concerning its morality, landing on everything from temperance to prohibition. Yet, however, despite what you may have heard, you need to understand that Scripture itself does not prohibit alcohol's consumption broadly, nor based on some arbitrary time of the day. These are just things that we don't find in the Bible. The Torah from the Hebrew scripture calls for fasting from wine when we're honoring certain religious vows, and it outright prohibits drunkenness at any point, do not get me wrong. But wine itself, the fruit of the vine, a necessary thing, in the ancient world, which lacked pure water sources, was considered a good gift from God. It was used in temple sacrifices, during holy days, festivals, Sabbath dinners. Heck, one of Jesus' miracles involved turning what into wine? Water. He uses it at the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist dinner. All to say, all together, you have to understand, alcohol's consumption is never outright prohibited in scripture. Instead, what we find is that it's understood as something that can both bring joy or ruin to a person. 
based upon how and why it's used. Which, this week for me, as the movie buff that I am, brought to mind a really interesting film I saw last year. It's this movie called Another Round. Has anyone seen this movie? It's a foreign film, so probably not, because you're all Americans. And the world doesn't exist outside of our walls, right? No, this is a fascinating movie. It stars my guy, Mads Mikkelsen, Casino Royale fame, that's right. And it's about these friends who, following a shared midlife crisis, start day drinking together to spice up their lives. Essentially, from the beginning of their day, they start consuming alcohol. And they give it some strict rules about how much they can drink and when because they don't want to get out of hand. And honestly, it starts out kind of fine until, inevitably, it's a movie, there's an arc. You guys think it stays fine? No, it eventually spirals out of control. <laughs> Now, based upon the synopsis, you'd assume that this movie would come down incredibly hard on the morality of drinking, right? Anyone? You would think so. A movie about day drinking. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't. This was fascinating. See, instead, it lands in this really gray space. Because though day drinking obviously is not good for any of these people, it's not good for most people, most, in the end, still exit this story okay. They surrender the habit, many of whom are able to do so without even having to fully quit drinking. That is except for one character, who, and I'm not going to spoil it, has a previously unidentified alcoholism that comes out as they begin this habit. This one character who cannot stop when the rest of the friends choose to stop, producing for him a catastrophic conclusion to his story. Thus, the movie concludes with this really kind of gray space, right? Without providing a clear answer, placing alcohol's morality in the subjective area that's based on each individual's needs, wants, desires, relationship to it. Are y'all tracking with me? And for me, upon returning to the Bible, I was kind of shocked to find that this is kind of scripture's take on the issue too. That shockingly, it's actually quite open-ended when it comes to this topic, which can make us crazy, right? Like how many of us, when we have these hard issues, we're like, just tell me yes or no, Bible, right? Yet it refuses to so often, like in this case, And in that, I think we arrive at that deeper complexity that I mentioned that arises from our attempt to answer the seemingly simple question. That is, it forces us to confront the part of our humanity that creates that response, this need in us for clear, universal, one-size-fits-all rules or legalism, which Jesus had some, well, not nice things to say about when it comes to religion, did he not? This impulse where when facing complicated issues, we instinctually seem to grasp not for truth, not for the compassionate answer, but for control, certainty, and above all, simplicity. Because it's comfortable. Because it makes us feel good. Even though it's usually not helpful as we navigate this life. I mean, name a complex ethical quandary in human history, and you're going to find Christians, past or present, responding not with wrestling with its complexity to find a thoughtful, good path forward, but rather simplifying it into dogma that's then codified into simple rules and imposed onto everyone with the broadest brush imaginable. Has anyone seen that in our world? Y'all, I remember 
When I became an atheist, I went off to college at the University of Florida to go Gators. And I thought I escaped such religious legalism in my childhood. And I get to Alachua County and oh my goodness, I cannot buy alcohol on Sundays because some Christians made these things called Sabbath laws. I don't even believe in your God. And you're still making me not drink. It was wild, right? And let me ask you, did those Sabbath laws solve anything? Did they, did they end alcohol abuse? No, I can tell you from a fact that they did not. More on that later. We create these arbitrary restrictions that don't produce transformation, that don't solve the root problems, whose reasons for existing are almost immediately forgotten, making them just these laws that produce confusion, shame, and above all, resentment towards us in the process. Again, has anyone seen that in the world? And y'all, let me be clear. Pursuing ethical legalism for simplicity's sake is not what Jesus called his disciples to. Instead, the New Testament holds a more nuanced, transformative vision of ethics that can direct us, not just concerning alcohol, but much more. And that's what I want to explore today. And to explore that ethical vision, I want to turn to Romans chapter 14. Now, for context, the book of Romans, the letter to the church in Rome, was written to a church that was deeply divided along cultural lines, specifically Jewish and Gentile, non-Jewish lines. And in it, what we find is Paul using kind of his wisdom to lay out the gospel story, to tell the story of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, all to make this fundamental point that through Jesus, God has invited everyone in to receive forgiveness, to find grace, to experience in response renewed humanity. As well as, Paul then shifts, he begins applying that gospel to our lives. He says, so if you believe that to be true, then this is how that story will impact your tangible daily actions. In particular for this community, these divisions amongst you. This is how that story of Christ must fundamentally or shape how you respond to these conflicts, including in chapter 14, where Paul tackles this huge major debate from the early church. That is this argument concerning whether Christians must still follow the Old Testament kosher laws, which prohibited the consumption of certain foods and drinks and obviously the Jewish Christians argued that it still applied because this was their cultural framework and the Gentile Christians didn't because they thought it was all kind of weird. They didn't want to get circumcised. They definitely didn't want to be told what to eat, which makes sense. And what happens is both sides were judging each other, arguing with each other, imposing their views on new Christians who came to the door, arguing that their beliefs were not negotiables of the faith, all of which Paul believed fundamentally contradicted Jesus's call for the church. Because Paul believes, as we should, that the church was meant to be defined not by legalism, but by transformation, heart change, discipleship, lifelong renewal of our humanity together in community. Criteria which, though harder to measure than, say, eating pork, are closer to what God cares about, are closer to God's heart, his purposes for us in this world. Thus, in response to this mess, Paul offers this wisdom. We're going to pick up in 14, verse 14. Paul writes, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, Paul weighs in on the subject, right? And how does he land on this? Does he think that anything should be prohibited outright? No, right? 
Paul declares all food and drink to be clean, which are Hebrew terms that basically mean spiritually okay to consume, which is where Paul lands on this elsewhere in the scriptures, arguing that Christ crucified freed us from legalistic religion, making trusting him, following him, the sole criteria of faith. Thus, in Christ, what we eat and drink doesn't by itself impact our relationship with God anymore, Paul says making such prohibitions for Christians obsolete, which is as clear as it gets, right? Problem solved, right? Thanks, Paul, sermon over. And you can hear the Gentiles going, huzzah, right? (laughs) Take that, Jewish Christians. We can do whatever we want, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, right? Hold up, Paul continues. But, 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 if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is what? unclean. So nothing's sinful to consume, unless I think it is, at which point it becomes sinful to consume. Clear as mud, right? right. But this logic is actually profound. Think about this. You see, Paul's acknowledging that within any Christian community, we're going to find a whole hodgepodge of people at different levels of spiritual maturity. New Christians, young Christians, old Christians, mature Christians, all trying to live together and follow Jesus. And thus, in such community, what might inhibit one person from following Jesus well may not inhibit another. Let's, let's make this concrete. Let's take alcohol as a perfect example of this. Question, is going to a bar inherently sinful? No, it's just a place, right? However, consider this. Mike Overstreet, I'm an alcoholic. And there was a time early in my recovery, years back, where visiting a bar would have surely, and I'm telling you, surely, have led me to relapse because I was not yet spiritually mature enough to handle that kind of temptation. So same question, at that moment in my life, would going to a bar have been sinful for me? Yeah, Would it have led me away from rather than towards Jesus based on my spiritual maturity? Yes, right? Obviously, same action, different answers concerning what's morally acceptable, determined by where I am at in my spiritual maturity. Are y'all tracking with me? This is Paul's core conviction here. He believes that given the transformation focus of Christianity, disciples are called not to embrace just some standardized list of rules to check off, but rather to continuously become more like Jesus, growing daily in our ability to work out for ourselves within any context what would inhibit us from following him well and then acting accordingly. Simply put, Paul's like, I can't give you a clear ethical rule set for following Jesus correctly in every conceivable circumstance for the next 2,000 years. You need to mature in your ability to discern what inhibits you from following Jesus yourself. You need to figure out which of these non-essentials of the face are going to trip you up. I can't follow Jesus for you. So... First, weigh your conscience, Paul says. But that's not all. He continues, verse 15, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. 
Do not by your eating destroy someone else for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to what? Peace. And what? Mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So beyond weighing our conscience, apparently mature Christians should also discern what's right and wrong by considering their relationships or more importantly, their impact and the impact of their choices onto the people around them, which Paul says includes choosing not to do something that might harm someone else, even if that action in isolation wouldn't be inherently sinful for me to do personally. So again, let's make this concrete. Let's consider alcohol. Question, is it sinful for me today as someone who's been sober for years now and who is confident in their sobriety to meet you somewhere that serves alcohol? Trick question, that's not your job. (laughs) It's between me and Jesus. No, only God can judge me. No, I'll tell you for myself, as someone who has wrestled with that very question, I think the answer is no, it wouldn't be sinful. See, I don't think I'm at a place in my life where I need to be concerned about that. I'd rather not go to a bar to meet because that sounds really boring for someone who can't order a drink. But I'm spiritually mature enough at this point in my life where it wouldn't endanger my sobriety, my walk with God. I believe that deep in my soul. But imagine someone who's just 24 hours sober reaches out to me and they ask to meet. And I respond with, sure, let's meet at Warhorse." Same behavior for me, right? Going to a bar and not drinking because I'm spiritually mature enough to not do that. But has it become sinful now? You betcha. You betcha. I mean, for Paul, the kingdom of God is fundamentally about fostering right relationship, peace, wholeness, the joyous renewal of hurting people. For him, Christ's gospel of grace and the transformation that's meant to enact inside of us and through us in this world is the most important thing in the entire universe. So given that, does inviting that hurting person to a bar help or inhibit their movement towards Jesus, the one who heals? Y'all, it risks destroying them, does it not? Snuffing out that good desire to get help, to move towards Christ before it can even take root in their lives, before it can mature at all. Yo, that's a disaster. That's an utter moral failure on my part, is it not? That's Paul's point here. Yes, in Christ, we are free to eat and drink whatever we want. Those are gospel non-essentials, things whose goodness in our lives we must work out with Jesus for ourselves. But... When our use of that Christian freedom begins to inhibit the gospel from reaching broken people, when our insistence upon being allowed to do what we want takes precedence and priority over another person's good, y'all, 
In such moments, Paul believes that we have fundamentally strayed from the ethic of Christ crucified. Period. As Christians, we're called to weigh every choice through whether it contributes to loving God, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And if it doesn't, then we must stop because mature Christians recognize that other people always take precedence over flexing our spiritual rights. Thus, if you discern that drinking won't inhibit your discipleship, then y'all go ahead, drink. Just love the freshly sober alcoholic enough to avoid doing so, exercising that freedom around them until they're mature enough to handle it. That's what this is about. All to say, it boils down to this. Each day, we're called to take Christ crucified and weigh our conscience and our relationships and ask, is this helping me grow? Is this helping me become more like Jesus? Is this causing harm? Is it loving God and neighbor as myself? And then we act accordingly. That's it, right? We can do that, right? Just kidding, it's very complicated. But that episode framework can obviously be applied to alcohol consumption, as we've proven. But also anything else too. That's what I love about this. Because wisely, it recognizes that the thing, the behavior, the person, the relationship, the object, the substance, is rarely in and of itself our real problem, is it? That often, it's actually our deeper, broken, heart-level relationship to that thing that's making it toxic in our lives. Or said another way, it's that we've turned something good that God has made into an idol, a false God, something that we've elevated to the level of dependence and deluded ourselves into thinking will give us peace, identity, joy, security, meaning, love, that that thing can heal us, fix us, Make us whole, complete me. For me, historically, that's been alcohol, which isn't inherently evil, but y'all, it became evil for me because as an alcoholic, I needed it. I used it to numb and hide my own spiritual bankruptcy, to escape my brokenness rather than face it, admit my powerlessness over it and hand it over to Christ crucified, the one who can save me. And maybe that's true for you too. Or maybe it's something else. Money, workaholism, judgmentalism, pride, relationships, sex, TV, politics, debate, being right. <laughs> Anger. You know, as humans, we've all got something. Some idol that when we are self-honest, we know in our soul is making us sick, leading us to trample over our neighbor. Yet we ignore that nagging of our conscience because we need the feeling of control, power, escape that it's grown to provide in our psyche. And then that, I found myself thinking of this art installation I saw a few years back that stuck with me. It's titled Can't Help Myself by Sun Yuan and Peng Yu. And originally, this piece is actually about global politics. We'll talk about that some other time. But it's one that instinctually, whenever I see it, makes me think of this issue. Because what it is, is it's a robot that's designed to try to keep pushing back in its own oil as it leaks out of itself. 
And perpetually, it's going to do this forever until the machine literally breaks down and can't do it anymore. It's just going to keep trying to get that stuff back in as its life force gushes out. And y'all, for me, that mirrors exactly what it looks like when we don't identify and deconstruct the idols in our lives. We become people with these gushing, internal, heart-level wounds, endlessly trying to hide it, frantically trying to keep everything together, just living within that insanity, doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results as we just get sicker and sicker and sicker and our brokenness inevitably overflows onto everyone with the misfortune of being around us. Let me tell you from experience, that is the case. More so, let me tell you from experience, that's misery. It robs us of finding the renewed humanity that Jesus offers from discovering our true self in Christ Jesus, from the peaceful, right relationships of God's kingdom. We just end up missing out on the beautiful resurrection life that God promises while becoming stumbling blocks to others as they try to strive for that very thing. And y'all, that's a tragedy every single time. But, and here's the good news, but as Paul found in Christ, we don't need to be stuck there. We can instead open ourselves to the renewal of our hearts to a power greater than ourselves, to a power greater than our addiction, to a power greater than our idolatry, a power that is God, that can transform us from the inside out. Y'all, that's good news. All we need to do is come to Jesus, embrace grace and name what's already true in our lives. Admit our powerlessness and let him guide us from it into transformation. That's it letting him guide us, according to Paul, into regularly inventorying our internal world. Y'all, taking five minutes, just five minutes, each day to weigh our consciousness, to ask, what's nagging at me? What's convicting me? And is that coming from my conscious desire to follow Jesus better or from one of those idols? Is what I've identified, that object, habit, behavior, relationship, attitude, growing or inhibiting my experiences of Christ's freedom, the sunshine of the spirit. That's the job of being a Christ follower to just daily reflect inventory and weigh our internal world alongside our God. But we don't stop there because we also got to consider our external world too, don't we not? Because Christian ethics isn't just about individual purity. It's about, as Paul points out, love, which doesn't believe that what's good for me can ever be separated from how I impact other people. Thus daily, we take Christ crucified and we apply his example to our relationships, looking for where our brokenness has overflowed, where our choices have caused harm, self-reflecting, why did we do that? What idolatry did that reveal? Where do I need to make amends? Each day with Jesus checking our conscience and our relationship and asking, what does it mean? to love God, love my neighbor in this moment. And then we just act accordingly. Bracing grace and change is needed because you'll mess up. It's imperfect. But then resetting our focus 
on following Jesus with just that next step. That's spiritual maturity, y'all. And yes, that creates an ethic that's more complex than rules, that's messier, that doesn't let me play judge. That frankly asks more of us, more of our time, intention, thought. No one wants to do that. More of our trust. Specifically, it asks that we trust that Jesus is actively guiding not just me, but also you and everyone else who follows him in each given moment, which is hard. I mean, it's also definitely harder to draw lines around, right? To know who's in and out. That's a hard standard. But y'all, it's also good and bluntly, simply what our king calls us to. So to close, is drinking alcohol sinful? Answer, big shrug. I can't tell you. I can't tell you if you should or shouldn't drink before noon on Sunday. I can give you my thoughts, but I can't tell you. I can't name your idols for you. Y'all, that's not my job. But I can tell you that it's sinful for me. That from reflection and experience, Jesus has revealed to me that whenever I consume alcohol, my internal world goes absolutely insane. That I wreak relational wreckage in my life. That I become a bad father, a bad husband, a bad pastor, a bad friend that I can't help myself but become a stumbling block when it comes to this substance. And I can tell you that what we're all called to is to, on a daily basis, draw closer to our God. Look to Jesus, weigh our conscience, seek right relationship and trust that he will guide us into naming and shattering the idols of our lives so that we can better love him, others and ourselves and experience resurrection in the most broken places of our lives. And y'all, that's good news. Amen. Amen. Let's worship.